where the Erie Canal used to cross the Schoharie Creek. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is David Brooks. Thanks for being with us, David. Thanks for having me, Bob. David Brooks is Education Director at Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site in Fort Hunter, New York. Uh, and I'm sure you've done this before. Can you tell us about Scary Crossing? Uh, yeah, Scary Crossing is a wonderful state historic site and park. Uh, we have the three major phases of the Erie Canal all right here, from the 1820s Clinton's Ditch, the original Erie Canal, to the enlarged Erie Canal in which they built the Scary Creek Aqueduct. And then it's right adjacent to the Mohawk River, which is today's canal. Uh, we have miles of towpath trail, picnic areas, and a boat launch for people to come out, learn about the history of the canal, about Fort Hunter that existed before the canal, as well as have an enjoyable, memorable experience recreating at our site. Mm. And with the tease at the start of this episode, I said it's where the Erie Canal used to cross the Schoharie Creek. And that, of course, is more complex than I'm making it in that uh, it wasn't the first Erie Canal that did that, I guess. It was the second? Uh, both of them crossed the Schoharie Creek. The original canal actually crossed through the creek uh, by use of a dam in the creek to create a slack water pool. And that was a very complicated process in which you had to get not just the barges, but the draft animals, those mules that everybody likes to talk about, to the other side of the creek. And that presented a, a world of problems, particularly after a rainstorm and the creek waters would be moving too fast, even with that dam. And so they immediately knew that they were going to have to do something different. And that led to when they enlarged the canal, they made it wider and deeper to accommodate traffic that they built the aqueduct. So we have the original crossing through the creek and the second crossing of the aqueduct over the creek. Mm. And the aqueduct doesn't really exist. I mean, its ruins are there or its remnants are there, right? Yeah, and I always prefer the term remnants. Uh, ruins sounds a little bit depressing, and it's still a, a beautiful example of the engineering and the architecture of the enlarged Erie Canal. Uh, we have six arches that remain standing. Uh, originally, it was 14 arches and 624 feet. Um, so there's just a little bit less than half that's still standing, um, and it gives a really good representation on how the aqueduct was built I look at the silver lining of we might not have all of the aqueduct, but that means that we can talk about how the stones were cut, how they were laid, how those arches were created, um, and how the wooden trough that held the canal water would have been held. Mm. So this is a, a stone bridge over the creek carrying water. I mean, the canal itself was in this aqueduct. Correct, yeah. So there's the wooden trough, and it's really difficult to kind of see that now. Uh, without having seen other aqueducts that have either been continuously used or rehabbed, like the one in Camillus uh, over the Nine Mile Creek. And one of the benefits that we have now that we're reopening here at the Visitor Center by reservation is that there's a wonderful model that we have inside of our Pathway to Empire exhibit, and it shows how the aqueduct and Lock 30 adjacent to it looked about 1905. So you can see the the remains of the aqueduct here on site, and if we're open and you make a reservation to see us inside the visitor center, you can see how the aqueduct looked in, in its full completion and how it was being used. Now, every time the Erie Canal encountered a stream going north-south, you know, crossing it, uh, that posed a problem like this. I mean, were there all kinds of aqueducts along the Erie Canal? Yeah, there, was, there were several aqueducts. 
Um, and if the, the stream or the creek was small enough, a lot of times it could actually divert that uh, by use of culverts. So instead of an aqueduct, you'd have a single culvert that the water would pass under the canal. Uh, an example of that would be actually here on site. The, um, as the enlarged canal went through what we now have as Schoharie Crossing, there were three culverts. And one that still exists is great. You can see it when the water in the river is down before the canal opens up, the Putnam culvert. It was a stone line culvert, and it actually diverted the creek under the enlarged canal. Um, so anything that was much larger or unable to just be put under a culvert, there'd be an aqueduct. And some of those aqueducts were only a couple of arches. Several of them were like this Goharis 14. You have Montezuma and the Genesee River aqueduct mm-hmm. out in Rochester even. They're much, much larger, lower and upper aqueducts that cross the canal over the Mohawk River into uh, Saratoga County and back. Um, so there was a lot of, it was, it was a detriment and there was a lot of engineering workarounds that had to be uh, done because of those lateral creeks. Mm. And when they built the barge canal, they just, in our part, or the part of the canal where you are, it became the river, right? I mean, they canalized the river. Correct, yeah. So that you, you avoid a lot of those issues with streams or creeks. Uh, they canalized the Mohawk River. Uh, yeah, they have the technology by the early 20th century for um, steam-operated machinery for dredging and also the development of the superstructures, these dams that they could be able to put in the river to manipulate water levels. Um, a lot of that became really apparent for folks this past season. Uh, today's canal system had, in the Mohawk Valley region hadn't fully opened until just about July 20th or so. And so you start seeing the water levels in the Mohawk River extremely low because of the drought conditions, and you can see how those dams really do regulate the flow of water, not just for the canal, mm-hmm. but in today's modern era. You know, there's a recreation way, there's irrigation, there's hydropower. There's a lot of factors that go into it now. Um, but early 20th century, they had the technology to do that. They put in the superstructures, they create dams, they manipulate the water in that way. Um, so you can avoid a lot of the other issues with creeks and streams or sources of water but as i believe you're saying that this in the time of the well the pandemic when we didn't the work wasn't done on the barge or the erie barge canal to get those dams down you could see more of the old scary aqueduct right correct yeah we we kind of took it a another silver lining to the the operation of today's canal uh being delayed because of the pandemic uh, there's a lot more of what the remains of the aqueduct could be seen, as well as the dams, as I mentioned before, for the original um, crossing of the creek were much more visible, the creek water being very low, the river water being uh, very low. And that provided a new opportunity for us to kind of document that, but also visitors to the site walking our grounds. We got a lot of questions from people asking what these different features were. They were surprised to see remnants of several versions of dam out in the creek, uh, so it provides us a, a new level of interpretation on things you otherwise aren't able to see in the middle of June or July. Mm. David Brooks with us, Education Director of Scahari Crossing State Historic Site, which has some uh, inside stuff um, in, this vi- the, in the visitor center you mentioned. And maybe I should emphasize the point you made. You uh, visitor center at last report we're recording in early August, even though this is um, – uh, being on the internet some a month later, uh, so hope the situation. Well, I hope, but I don't know if the situation will still be the same. But f- at, at the time of recording, 
you have you need to make a reservation to go inside the visitor center yeah so we were able to reopen on july 22nd uh have after having the visitor center closed throughout the the season here um and in order to reopen through uh, a lot of the doh and the bureau for historic sites and office of park and recreation uh guidelines was that we we're going to open up and it's going to be by reservation only uh, that way we can reduce the capacity within the building to limit the number of people uh, to allow for distancing. It also allows us, after each of those groups, to be able to properly clean the exhibit space. Um, so in order to come and visit, you need to call the site uh, and set up a reservation. Um, we welcome you to the building. Masks need to be worn, and if you want to engage with our touchscreen exhibit panels, uh, you need to wear gloves. Um, but if people call us at 518 829 7516, uh, or they can also send an email, and that's scoheriecrossing at parks.ny.gov, and we can set up a reservation, welcome you to the visitor center, and be able to you know, provide additional information uh, about their exhibits or, or anything else canal-related. Mm-hmm. What, what is inside the visitor center that people would want to see? Well, we have uh, a fairly new exhibit opened up in 2018, Pathway to Empire, uh, it thematically goes through the process of building the canal and what that meant so far as not having engineers in New York State, um, right up through into today's modern canal and how that operates. We also have, as I mentioned, that large model of the Schoharie Creek Aqueduct as it looked at 1905. We can talk about Lock 30 and Brown's Cash Store and the aqueduct all in that model. There's some touch screens you can explore with that as well. It talks more about the engineering or the socioeconomic differences or impact of the canal. Um, we have some artifacts in the exhibit that are from Fort Hunter, uh, the colonial British colonial fort from the early 1700s that existed on site prior to the canal, um, and several other artifacts related to the canal, such as um, uh, a cheese box, there's a lantern, hardware from one of the gates, and also, you know, for more close-related, there's some... Um, uh, button um, that were made just down in Amsterdam uh, and a few other products that were kind of found along mm-hmm. on site as well. Um, so, so it's a good mix of, of content on touchscreens, content and exhibit panels, and some really interesting artifacts as well. But a lot of scary crossing is outside. I mean, do you need a, an appointment for that or people just, can they just go there and walk around? Yeah, it, it, we're always open on the grounds for a self-guided exploration. Uh, the grounds themselves are open every day out of the year from sunrise to sunset. Uh, we have interpretive panels throughout the site. It's, it's miles long. The site as stretches from the town of Glen through the town of Florida, um, from the, the west bank of the Scoria Creek across the east bank and towards south Amsterdam at Yankee Hill. Um, so there's miles of towpath trail and interpretive panels. And as long as you're here between those hours of sunrise and sunset, uh, you can explore. And then if you have questions, you can always give us a call, send us an email, check us out on Facebook, uh, and we'll try to reply to that as well. Um, But yeah, the major features of the canal, you can come here and witness that it's outdoors and it's it's a great way to explore. You can get some exercise and and learn a few new things. And and are there remnants also of one of the locks? Is it the Yankee Hill Lock toward yeah, we Amsterdam? Have, we have, yeah, we have uh, several remnants of, of locks. Um, right near the visitor center is the East Guard Lock and the original towpath 
uh, and original Clinton's Ditch Canal. We have about a half mile of that because it was used as a feeder. Uh, and that takes you up toward Empire Lock, uh, the enlarged, and also Lock 20 from the original, and that's the only place in the state that those two are still right next to each other. So Empire Lock from the enlarged, and then, yes, down at Yankee Hill, the east end of our site, going toward Amsterdam, just off Queen Anne Road, is Yankee Hill Lock. That's a doubled set of locks from the enlargement and the Putnam Canal Store, or the canal store building that uh, still exists there. Uh, and that's right on the banks of the Mohawk River as well. Can you go and can visitors go inside the Putnam store? Or is that not open? Uh, we, we we have it slightly restricted currently um, because of the pandemic. Uh, it'll be open particularly on weekends throughout the rest of the season for the restroom facilities. Uh, but there is a small exhibit area in that store that we are restricting right now just for social distancing measures and cleaning measures. Um, but mm-hmm. when we're open up uh, full time. On a normal season, there's an exhibit in there, particularly about canal stores. There's a mural and uh, panels that talk about different canal stores and how mm. um, I liken it to several of the, uh, you know, if it's a convenient gas station, <laughs> right. big box, you know, I won't mention names of these, these major big box stores, but, uh, you know, you kind of think of a canal store as being the one-stop shop of anything you could need from food and, and liquor to uh you know, clothing and, and other supplies. Uh, well, I was going more in the direction. It's almost like a rest area on the throughway, but I suppose yeah, it's more than point. that. Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of them would wind up also, you know, being a post office um, and have a butcher shop or other amenities to it. Yankee Hill, uh, the Putnam family had their canal store there, but also one was a cobbler and would do tack repairs as well as shoe repairs. And so there's a, it is, it's very much sort of like that, that throughway rest stop where you, you know, you can, stop and get a, a cheap hamburger and you know maybe some some fluid for your for your car and you can liken that to stopping and getting um you know a, a cheap snack or a bottle of liquor and a home remedy medicine <laughs> and also getting some oats for your for your draft animal right but they were they were selling that liquor there weren't they yes yeah uh yeah. and if it wasn't just at the canal store there was there were several bars and taverns along the way as well in fact, um, you know, we you know, discourage drinking and driving. I mean, it's against the law. But it sounds like the canal, I remember talking to a gentleman who I think you led me to uh, about the east end of the canal down near uh, Waterford where it was pretty rowdy down there. Yeah, I think you talked with uh, Michael Barrett about that. And uh, it was kind of the Barbary Coast of the canal in the sense that you're getting the 16s, the the 16 locks to get you around Cohoes Falls, um, being quite a, uh, uh, a volatile area. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because, you know, at the height of the canal era is also where there's this rise in a temperance movement. And so you have kind of the, maybe the causation to a rise in temperance in New York is also caused by the amount of, of alcohol consumption along the canal way. Um, but when you start looking at some of the other documentations to it, we have in our collection, um, it is a transportation company ledger book, and it specifically mm-hmm. states that the captain is not to hire people or to offer, you know, essentially don't hire alcoholics, don't hire men that are going to be drunk all the time. And as the captains of the barge, you are not to supply them with alcohol, things like that. And even uh, in review of the contract that Otis Eddy had signed to build the Schoharie Creek Aqueduct, there is a, a line in there about not, as a contractor, he is not mm-hmm. to supply ardent spirits. To his workers 
<laughs> okay. Um, so th- there's there's a, a you know a couple different views on alcohol in the canal. I, I guess so. And not to mention how that probably applied to the social distancing, which was not in existence then either. Correct, correct. Now, uh, we're talking to David Brooks, uh, Education Director, Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site, Fort Hunter, New York. Oh, before, I, I do want to ask you about, you know, not something completely different, but something a little bit different. But you're in Fort Hunter, and you made reference to this. Uh, before there was an Erie Canal, there was a fort there. There was a Fort Hunter. And I gather before that, there was a settlement of the Mohawk uh, Indian Nation. Yeah, so the fort was built, the original fort in 1712, uh, and that was adjacent to a Mohawk village, most commonly known as the Lower Castle, the Upper Castle being Canajahari area. And uh, in this area, it became known as Fort Hunter, is the Lower Castle. Um, and, And a lot of the the commentary about the reasons why uh, there was the the four Indian chiefs that had gone to visit with Queen Anne. Queen Anne had given them uh, permission to have a chapel and the fort be built as, whether it's protection or it's in a trade agreement, uh, it sort of it's uh, going back to polishing the chain, let's say, of the alliance between the British and the Native people. Um, so they built Fort Hunter here next to that, that Mohawk village. Uh, sort of near that confluence of the Schoharie and the Mohawks, these major waterways that are being used for trade and transportation. Mm. Again, David uh, Brooks is with us, Education Director, Schoharie Crossing, State Historic Site. And the Erie Canal is well known, you've been talking about, and that's where your site is located. But you've done research on a proposed Sacandaga River Canal in the Adirondacks. What have you uh, found out about that? Um, yeah, so the, to kind of preface the whole thing, um, I lead kind of a, a boring standard life. And a few years back, I, on, a, <laughs> on probably a Saturday evening, I'm at home watching YouTube videos about the canal. And right. from uh, what, what should be a fairly reputable, well-known institution, had put out a, a canal documentary that I was watching. And there was a map where they're showing the building in the original canal. And as I noticed this map, as they draw the line across New York State, goes through a body of water that I'm familiar with. I grew up next to the Great Sacandaga Lake. That oh. body of water wouldn't have existed when the original canal had been built, so I thought that was odd, and that they had drawn the line going through the Sacandaga Lake. Um, so I posted on my own personal Facebook page, like, this changes everything, this is this new revelation, you know, this is a reputable source, this, this uh, cable TV channel that has put this out. Just as sort of a farce or a joke about the whole thing, and you know, things will happen, and somebody that's doing an animation for a TV show may not have all the right information. Um, mm-hmm. But a, a fairly frequent guest on the Historians podcast, uh, Peter Betts, had made a yeah. comment that there might be something to think about here, uh, and he made a reference to Judge Caddy having had some sort of a canal interest or buying stock into some sort of a canal, so I should look into that. And so I did, and Judge Caddy... Uh, the father of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, did have an interest in what was a private stock company in the Cayadetta Canal. And they were going to canalize mm-hmm. the part of the Cayadetta Creek between the Fonda area up through Johnstown for, you know, moving products and from the mills, and that way they could mm-hmm. connect it to um, what was at that point in time being built and finished as the Erie Canal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led me to references to a second dog a canal, 
And I thought, well, I, I grew up on the Sacandaga Lake, and this is an interest to me. So if it connects to the Erie Canal, let me see what I can come up with. Because, um, spoiler alert, it wasn't built. There's the Great Sacandaga Lake because there wasn't a Sacandaga River Canal. Um, so as the Erie Canal is being finished in 1824, um, there's actually a call from Montgomery County residents. Um, and that's a much larger county in 1824 than it is now. By 1838, Montgomery County splits to be Fulton County and Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Um, but these area residents are calling for, uh, and they're petitioning through their assembly people uh, in the state legislature to do a survey and how they could build the canal. And this is at the emergence of a canal fever across New York State anyway. So there's all these different towns that want to connect to the Erie because before it's completed, they know it's, it's successful already. They know it's going to be, you know, a, a major change in the economy of the state, mm-hmm. and they want to. They want. They want to connect to it. They want these lateral canals to connect to it. So, county residents get their legislators to propose it. Um, it kind of dies, you know, in committee essentially, as a lot of bureaucratic things happen in government. Um, so it isn't until actually the later 1830s um, that there's actually a another great push for it and there's money set aside and there are surveyors that are are brought in to survey a route that would have connected either to Amsterdam or to the Fonda area uh, up along uh, into the Sacandaga Valley and into the northern wilderness and the northern lands what we call the Adirondacks today. Mm. So it was an idea but never really pursued or did they ever lift a shovel full of uh, dirt out of the ground to build it no no and what winds up happening and i any good story to me kind of has to have a villain and so and unfortunately because of the eyes of time and look back on it i I kind of paint george hoffman who is the surveyor as sort of the villain of the story um though i'm sure that that's not the case he was you know a surveyor he also worked for some railroad companies but he's mm-hmm. being asked to do a survey, and he wants, he does a pretty good job. He, he winds up surveying several routes, not just a route, and has a pretty detailed report to the Senate and to the Assembly, uh, which is followed up by the, the State Surveyor General, Orville Holly. Um, and they both kind of agree on the same thing, that the expense of the canal would be too great for what the benefit would be. And so George Hoffman, I kind of paint him as, not only is he working for the railroad companies, but he states in his report that the area would be much more improved upon with a railroad instead of a canal, um, so far uh-huh. as logistics. Um, and so I haven't taken that as the next step. There, there's, there's several other railroads that will be developed into the Adirondacks. Um, you have things like the FJ&G that go up, and you know there's the tourism mm-hmm. that will be created along the second dog because of that. Um, so unfortunately, because you know the hands of time, uh, I'll paint George Hoffman as slightly the, the villain of the story because... He really does. He advocates strongly much more for either a rail line or just a state road going up into the northern wilderness um, as opposed to a canal. So uh, the canal well, I hate to say it, but didn't he have a point? I mean, it seems, it seems to me that the, the canal, the, the Erie Canal, was very successful, right, when it was built. But it had kind of a limited shelf life for being important to, uh, to commerce. And it had had to fight both what uh, that Hoffman guy was advocating, both railroads and then roads. Yeah, and, and I think with the, the, the greater success of the Erie uh, being the sort of the ingenuity behind it and sort of the, 
the audacity of New York to do such a thing at such a scale so early on in the early republic. And so even a decade or so later, uh, yeah, railroads are kind of coming into it. But there's also a difference in the terrain. Uh, the Erie Canal, spanning over 360 miles, has an elevation difference of less than 600 feet. So there's major things to get around, like Little Falls and Cohoes Falls. The problem with going up into the second, to the second Daga Valley um, is water source. You need to have a canal that's at least 12 miles kind of longer with these different feeders. And then it's a, uh, it's a less natural system because they're saying that we can use slack water navigation mixed in with canalized parts. Um, you don't have the same level of control. And so the topography across New York State through the Mohawk Valley is much more convenient for a canal than trying to go up into uh, the foothills or into the Adirondacks, or what we know of the Adirondacks today. Um, and I kind of like to make the point that the Erie Canal, it was such a success that it kind of, um, and that they had enlarged it several times, and it almost works itself out of its, in, its, its intended job um, through these enlargements, uh, even up until the early 20th century when they built the Barge Canal. Uh, but yeah, the, the competition of the railroad companies um, and railroad companies that can r- put their lines down, not just within a state, but between states. Um, and then as you get into particularly the, the mid-20th century with the interstate system, you have the Eisenhower interstate system and the Teamster mm-hmm. unions that is sort of that last death knell cry for the canal and its cargo. Uh, we have seen in the last few years that cargo on the canal has risen. Uh, it's, uh, it's starting to be used more for, for such larger um, items that you can't put on the back of a tractor trailer. GE still uses it to ship. Um, a couple of years ago, the Genesee Brewery used it to ship mm-hmm. their giant tanks into uh, their, their brewery system. Um, and there's gravel, and, and it just doesn't have the same commercial effect as it did before, but I think that's because the canal's intent was to open up the interior of the continent, and it did so well in doing so that be, the United States becomes a uh, continental country. Uh, it's transcontinental, and mm-hmm. that opens up for railroads to be successful and for other canals and other waterways to be used. Um, so we wind up moving along with that technology, and uh, it works itself. And I, I use that a lot of times when I talk to, to fourth graders when we have our school groups, that you should always be really good at your job, but not so well as that you'll be replaced by somebody else. <laughs> no, you'll be replaced. And <clears throat> it's now it seems that many people regard, I mean, it's beautiful, the, the river and the canal and all that, but it's, it's kind of a problem, you know, when we have floods and droughts and so forth. Yeah, and I think that there's been, uh, in the last several years, particularly after Hurricane Irene uh, and some of the devastation from that, there's a lot about nature that the humans can't control as much as we feel like we can. And canalizing the river means that we feel like we're controlling that waterway, um, which doesn't always work. But there has been in the last several years some, some changes to the uh, how that system is regulated and how... They are using new levels of technology and monitoring to be able to change how they can adjust those water levels. Uh, and I won't speak directly toward uh, certain things that the Canal Corporation underneath the Power Authority does, but I do know that uh, in recent years, you know, using this new level of technology and uh, these new emergency procedures to kind of regulate that water in these events, um, there are still going to be times that nature is going to have a surprise for us. Uh, it mm-hmm. happened 200 years ago when they're building the canal and there's washouts or, you know, uh, just 
100 years ago or, or so, 116 years ago, there's large sections of the canal that gets washed mm-hmm. out in the spring in 1904. So there's a lot of, a lot of times we have to really understand that there's the nature around us still has a lot to say, and we should respect yep. that, but um, that we can't foresee everything that could possibly happen. Well, David Brooks, it's a pleasure talking with you. Very knowledgeable you are about uh, canals and uh, many things in our regional history. David Brooks is Education Director at Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site in Fort Hunter, New York. Uh, They have uh, websites also. What's that phone number people can call? It's 518-829-7516. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.